Folks, I've got good news and bad news. The good news is that two weeks ago, this podcast broke onto the charts, rocketed onto the charts, some would say, the top 100 podcast list for Apple Podcasts in Kyrgyzstan. That is true. I'm in the top 100 in Kyrgyzstan, which, look, if you know about podcasting, you know that Kyrgyzstan's kind of the market that everyone's trying to crack, right? Like, you know how the Beatles left the UK in the early 60s and wanted to make it big in America because that was the real test? With podcasting, really, Kyrgyzstan is the test. I have passed that test with flying colors. Once you crack Kyrgyzstan, the world is your oyster. Kazakhstan's probably next. Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, any of those other weird Middle Asia ones. Obviously, this is great news for me. I bought a Bentley. I got a little crazy. Here's the bad news. Last week, I dropped out of the top 100 in Kyrgyzstan. I had it, and I lost it. I was there two weeks ago. Number 99. Now, I'm off. What went wrong? I blame the copyright-expired music. I think I picked the wrong track last week. Last week, it was Paul Whiteman's Whistling. Two weeks ago, when I became... Let's face it, the fastest rising podcaster in Kyrgyzstan. I chose a song by Freddie Keppard. Freddie Keppard, of course, the one-time king of jazz who was reluctant to record, and that kind of ruined his career. He never did get big in Kyrgyzstan. Maybe that's why they're so thirsty for his music now. So I have chosen another Freddie Keppard song this week. This is the song Salty Dog. And I hope that doesn't translate into anything dirty in Kyurg, though I suspect that it does. Salty Dog by Freddie Keppard had eight views on YouTube when I found it. The evidence that this song is huge in Kyrgyzstan, admittedly thin at the moment. But again, maybe that's what was working to begin with. I was exposing Kyrgyzstan to all this great music, and Salty Dog is going to be the toast of the town in... whatever city they have in... I cannot think of a single one. Kyurg City? Is that one? <laughs> It'll be the toast of the town. Or at least that is the hope, because God, I need to get back in the top 100 in Kyrgyzstan. I will not rest until I am back on the Kyrg charts. Hello, everyone. Especially all my listeners in Kyrgyzstan. I'm going to go ahead and record this episode in English once again, because my Kyrg is heavily accented at this point, if that is the language you speak in Kyrgyzstan. So I'm going to do English. Thank you for listening. This is the I Might Be Wrong podcast. This is the audio version of articles that can be found on my Substack, which is called I Might Be Wrong, and can be found at imightbewrong.substack.com, or better yet, imightbewrong.substack.krg. Please check it out. It is currently completely free. It will not cost you a single SOM, which Google tells me is the currency they use in Kyrgyzstan. Presently completely free. Today's episode is called The American People Are Old Enough to Know where gas prices come from. I wanted to write this one, obviously because of the war in Ukraine. Gas prices have shot through the roof. Last week, Congress and the president decided to prohibit the import of Russian petroleum products, which I think is the right move. And now it's very obvious that some people are going to try to use high gas prices as a campaign issue, basically a stick to whack Joe Biden with. And I think that's very stupid. So the episode is called The American People Are Old Enough to Know Where Gas Prices Come From. Subtitle, Time to Stop with the Silly Stories. 
I have a vague memory of being probably five years old and asking, Mommy, where do gas prices come from? This made my mom very nervous. I remember her kind of fidgeting in her seat. She wasn't comfortable. Finally, she said, why, gas prices come from the gas stork. The gas stork flies across the land every morning and sets prices. Now, I knew that this was bullshit. A neighbor had already told me that gas prices are grown in a cabbage patch when a Saudi sheik buries a magic oil seed on a full moon. So I knew where gas prices come from. And I persisted. I said, why didn't President Carter get the gas stork to lower prices and boost his sagging presidency? And mom answered right away. She said, because Jimmy Carter was a traitor and a fraud and is rightly considered history's greatest monster. Little harsh, mom, but that's the real thing that she said. Now, virtually every culture has a myth about the origin of gas prices. It's really quite beautiful. The Mayans believed that Gurkhamat's the feathered spirit made a barrel of crude out of clay, and then breathed life into it, and then sold that barrel for 50 bucks. Hindu lore tells of Purusha, a being with a thousand heads, a thousand eyes, a thousand feet, and also a Chevy Tahoe that he would fill for $3 a gallon. Ancient Egyptians believed that the sun god Ra appeared from out of a lotus flower, and using one of those really long poles that they use to adjust prices on a gas station reader board, fixed the price of gas at $2.59.09. These views of how gas prices came to be are not my own, but I do appreciate them for what they tell us about the world and human society and our efforts to understand our surroundings. But the one myth that I really cannot abide is the myth that the president sets the price of gas. To hear some people talk, you would think there's a button on the president's desk labeled lower gas prices, which when you recall that Trump had a Diet Coke button <laughs> on the Resolute desk, which apparently he did, that means there are three buttons on the desk, one for lower gas prices, one for nuclear war, and one for Diet Coke. Don't press the wrong button. This is all very stupid. For decades, American politicians have indulged the obvious bullshit surrounding gas prices for cynical reasons. It has distorted our politics, and it has led to bad decisions. It is currently influencing our decision-making on Russia. I think it is well past time to put this particular myth to bed. Now, most Americans know that the president does not set gas prices. We understand that markets for crude oil are global, and though the president and Congress have some influence, and they do have some influence over supply and demand, especially domestically, they are only two players in a very large global game. Of course, our leaders don't often trumpet this fact. Presidents, especially, don't typically stand at the top of a mountain and yell, I'm feckless! That's not really the image they want to project. There is a reason why Harry Truman put a sign on his desk that said, The buck stops here, and not a sign that said, Oh, man is but dust in the cosmic wind, fated to be blown hither and yon to one day alight in a resting place chosen by fate. Oh, cruel fate! There was no such sign. Jimmy Carter had a sign like that, but Jimmy Carter's history's greatest monster. Enough people believe that the president has a great deal of influence over gas prices to affect our politics. As it happens, voters who can be won over in the final days before an election very often are so-called low-information voters, which is a euphemism that I still can't believe we're allowed to use. At any rate, 
these fuckwits, I'm sorry, low-information voters, are at least thought to frequently believe that the president basically controls the price of gas. I find this reality frustrating. (laughs) And in fact, the reality that the last days of a campaign are typically spent desperately pandering to people who respond to politics the way dogs respond to taking deworming medication, that's exactly the reason why I early on decided that electoral politics were not for me. But the fact remains, enough people believe that the president sets or at least greatly controls the price of gas to make a difference. There definitely does appear to be a relationship between the price of gas and a president's approval rating. If you go to the written version of this article, I have several impressive charts, none of which I made, but believe me, they are all very impressive. There's an x-axis and a y-axis. There are colored lines doing various things. Oh, it's all very scientific. And you will see that, yeah, there is definitely a relationship between the president's approval rating and the price of gas. Now, cynical and or stupid, and they are not mutually exclusive, cynical and or stupid politicians have frequently exploited this relationship for personal gain. My favorite example of this is Newt Gingrich running for president in the Republican primary in 2012, promising, promising $2.50 a gallon for gasoline. This, despite the fact that that's like promising sunny weather every day of the year. You don't control that, Newt. But it did help briefly propel Newt Gingrich to a lead in the Republican primary before he was brought back to earth by the fact that he is Newt Gingrich. Nonetheless, Gingrich had competition in the stupid Olympics in the form of Michelle Bachman, whom I consider to be basically Tarbosaurus to Trump's T-Rex. That's a paleontology joke. Michelle Bachman one-upped Gingrich by promising $2 a gallon gas, beating Newt's 250. So this was quite exactly the seven-minute abs exchange from something about Mary Newt Gingrich proposed seven-minute abs. Michelle Bachman came along and proposed six-minute abs. Neither of them are president today, though you can't totally say the low gas price gambit definitely didn't work for them. But the bottom line is, it is clear that many people associate the president with the price of gas. When prices are high, people typically blame the president. Enough people blame the president. They don't blame Congress or Wall Street, or oil companies, or the Freemasons, or the Lizard Illuminati, or the National Hockey League, or the Spice Girls, or former President Carter, though he is begging for it. And cases with differing levels of plausibility can be made for any of those groups. Most people know that OPEC is somehow involved, but that kind of points back to the president, because the same type of person who doesn't understand where the price of gas comes from might also believe that the president is able to perfectly manipulate OPEC to serve American interests using simple, we should have gotten a better deal logic, which is logic that I have complained about previously in an article called, Here Comes the Biden Should Have Got a Better Deal Takes. I hate that logic. People hiding behind a counterfactual that can't ever be disproved. We should have got a better deal! You can always say that in every context, always. So, This connection that people draw between gas prices and the president specifically distorts our politics. It is no coincidence that the White House lagged behind Congress in agreeing to cut off imports of Russian oil. Biden knows that he's going to get blamed for price increases. He's already calling the higher price of gas the Putin price increase. It's branding because he knows that he's liable to get blamed 
even though he's one player of many. And to be fair, this is 99% Vladimir Putin's fault. The good news, from my perspective, is that Biden chose to get on board anyway. He did the right thing. One would hope that the Republicans, who rightly, in my humble opinion, pushed to cut off Russian oil, would now refrain from hammering Biden over price increases or acting like minor changes in U.S. energy policy. Because they are talking about energy policy, but minor changes in U.S. energy policy would have major impacts on global energy markets, which they will not. Of course, the early returns are not good. I have already seen a tweet from Senate Republicans talking about the new record for the national average price of gasoline. Obviously, that does not take inflation into account. There are a lot of reasons why that's wrong, but this is clearly a stick Republicans are going to try to use to whack Joe Biden and congressional Democrats, even though it really is true that this is mostly Vladimir Putin's fault. Fear over the political impact of short-term oil shocks has been influencing American politics for decades. And it's not just American politics. High energy prices are bad politics around the world. Think of the Yellow Vests movement in France. I really never miss an opportunity to complain about the Yellow Vests movement. God damn those morons. At any rate, it's bad politics around the world. It is impossible not to wonder right now what the situation in Ukraine would look like if we had not spent decades filling Russia's coffers with petrodollars. And I feel like I should give credit where credit is due. Tom Friedman. Not a lot of people giving credit to Tom Friedman these days, but I'm giving credit to Tom Friedman, who has been writing and writing and writing <laughs> about weaning ourselves off of oil for two decades. He has correctly been complaining that governments in countries with large oil reserves, which would be Russia, Saudi Arabia, Iran, Venezuela, these tend to be a murderer's row of literal murderers. Propping up the worst regimes on the planet is only one negative effect of dependence on a commodity that has so many negative effects that it really does rival heroin and cobra venom for the title of most harmful substance on earth. Now, the energy independence that Republicans frequently call for, that's a red herring, in my opinion. We have actually basically achieved energy independence. In 2020, the U.S. became a net exporter of petroleum for the first time since at least 1949. That's as far back as the stats go. At least 1949. But just because we're energy independent, or roughly energy independent, that doesn't change a whole lot in terms of price. We're still subject to price shocks because oil is a global commodity. It's sold on a global market. Yeah, sure, it is good that we import very little energy from Russia, unlike some other countries. I'm looking at you, Germany. It's good that we don't import much from Russia. Russian crude is only 3% of U.S. imports. But producing more oil domestically does not do much to stabilize prices. Economists have been explaining why autarky isn't really practical for about two and a half centuries now. Perhaps after another two and a half centuries, politicians will get the picture. The only way to truly insulate ourselves from commodity price shocks is to not rely on that commodity. That's true, which is why our politics of doing whatever we can to keep gas prices low is self-defeating. It helps ensure that we will need to buy gas when the prices are high. When gas prices go up, people buy more fuel-efficient vehicles. Of course they do. If gas prices went high and stayed high, then people would care a lot less about the price of gas in the long term. 
but our habit of using the market power that we do have to drive gas prices down and to act like politicians have sold out the working man if prices are high, that keeps us vulnerable. Actually, in some ways, we are acting very much in concert with OPEC, which will frequently manipulate markets to keep prices low so as to actually avoid a shift away from oil consumption. This makes sense from their perspective, just as Disney knows that their long-term survival depends on keeping your kid addicted to the Cars franchise, and goddamn my younger nephew is addicted in the most tragic way to that franchise. Every goddamn Christmas I have to buy him the fucking Radiator Springs whatever shit set. Disney knows they have to keep your kids addicted to the Cars franchise. OPEC knows they have to keep us addicted to cars. The only question is what can be done to break the death grip that these organizations have on their consumers. I'm afraid it's too late for my younger nephew. Given that reality, it is good that Biden is raising vehicle mileage standards, which he did late last year. That will speed up the transition to more fuel-efficient cars, especially electric cars, Another good idea, enhanced tax credits for electric vehicles. Those, unfortunately, are stuck in the Build Back Better bill, which, of course, is frozen in carbonite and being stored in Joe Manchin's palace on Tatooine. We could also free ourselves from petroleum a bit and non-renewable energy generally a lot by transitioning to green energy, which, of course, means that subsidizing green energy would be smart and closing down nuclear plants would be dumb. Germany, I'm looking in your direction. None of these solutions are short-term solutions, but of course, if we had been implementing long-term solutions a long time ago, if we had been doing this back when Tom Friedman was lighting his mustache on fire about getting away from oil back in the early 2000s, these solutions would be helping us today. My nephews, who I've already mentioned, are at the age where they'll probably start asking about gas prices soon. It happens for boys their age. It's only natural. You see that adjustable reader board outside of Texaco, and you think, where does that price come from? Why is it one more cent than Sunoco? What's with that nine-tenths thing? Is anyone fooled by the nine-tenths? I do hope that I have the nerve to tell them the truth. I hope I don't chicken out when they ask and tell them some horseshit about a stork, partly because the Vlasic stork already is a stork who delivers pickles and talks like a long dead comedian for some reason. So I do feel that the stork as service provider genre is confusing enough as it is. I hope I don't say that. But of course, the absolute worst thing I could do is to tell them some stupid lie about the president controlling gas prices, because that lie, as common as it is, is pernicious and wrong and leads to nothing good besides I respect them too much to feed them such stupid bullshit. And that's the episode. I do hope you enjoyed the episode, especially if you are living in Kyrgyzstan, where I once was huge and hope to be huge again. God bless you, Kyrg listeners. I'm not sure if this podcast can undergo another format change. It is already politics and comedy, and then I've kind of made it also a jazz history podcast. I'm not sure if I can also add in the sport of Buskashi, which is, of course, I don't need to tell you, the national sport of Kyrgyzstan, in which players on horseback, it's a lot like polo, but they try to put a dead goat, I'm not making this up, try to put a dead goat inside a circle, and that's how you score points. There is actually an episode of the Netflix series Home Game about this Buskashi. 
It's interesting as hell. I recommend watching it. So I am not, I can't promise I'm going to make this a Buzkashi based podcast, but I'm not ruling it out either, especially with the Buzkashi season coming up. It's going to be a great year. At any rate, watch this space. I want to make this podcast everyone's go-to source for comedy, politics, jazz history, and dead goat polo. And I have said that since the beginning. Until then, I just want to remind you, all my stuff can be found at imightbewrong.substack.com. I will be back next week with another episode, so thank you very much for listening, and bye for now. Bob and Colin and Song That Song.